Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Wow, there's so much to cover in this week's episode as we talked about this idea of finding the the perfect side hustle, quote unquote. And I think that to me was what was so interesting about this is that it doesn't have to be perfect. What's important, just like with many of the concepts we talk about in financial independence, is taking action and doing something. You can always pivot later. So I think this conversation is going to really be able to highlight some of our key takeaways. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, this was a really good episode with Nick. And I agree with you that it doesn't have to be perfect with the side hustle. There's a lot of just trial and error. And that's what Nick said also. He's maybe had five good ideas in his life, but he's executed on them. And the things that didn't work, he just kind of shuttled to the side. And that's fine. I know my own journey has been very, very similar to that. I've had more quote unquote failures than I care to even remember, frankly. But they've all led me to this place. So were they truly failures? No, I don't think so at all. So lots to talk about, but yeah, what's going on in your life? Well, probably the coolest thing is that I have finally started saying yes to some of my wife's spontaneous adventures that she's teed up for us. And I don't know why I was resistant at first, since this is something that we talk about in the show. But when she pitched me on the idea of going to Stony Point Mall, a local mall to watch a Christmas tree being lit up, I was a little bit reluctant, but I went ahead and got past that and we did it. And we were there with probably a thousand other people in an outdoor mall with a 60 foot Christmas tree. It was amazing and totally free. So this was our spontaneous adventure of the week. To be honest, I kind of felt like I walked into a 1990s Christmas movie. It was, it was amazing. Uh, How about you, man? Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned spontaneous adventure. This is an interesting one for me because I know we talked way back when, when we had Mrs. Adventure Rich on the podcast and she talked about planned spontaneity, which to me is just such a cool term. And she talked about having these laminated maps in her house where they just circled different places that they wanted to go in their local area. So when a random Saturday morning showed up and they had nothing to do, they were ready to roll, right? They didn't have to do all the planning. Everything was set. They had go bags ready to deploy, literally just hop in the car and go. I just thought that was fantastic. I actually had kind of a fail in that regard this weekend. A friend of mine invited our family to go hiking on Sunday morning. And it was like the afternoon. We just were wholly unprepared. We had nothing ready. We we're actually having people over that night. We just didn't have time to like go out to the store and get food and all this other stuff. It just, it seemed like it was too much. And it's really sad because we would have had an absolute blast, but we just weren't prepared. So that reminded me of, all right, you need to take these lessons to heart and be ready for when that spontaneity shows up and someone invites you to something that you really want to do. So I know it sounds kind of silly to say no to something like that, but, but we just weren't there mentally. So that was kind of like an interesting takeaway for me, Jonathan. Well, we can both get better together. One of the things that, that I do for our family is we collect the pictures that we take throughout the year 
I try to put them all together into like a a slideshow slash mini DVD for not a DVD who has DVDs anymore, but it's a slideshow that you can watch on YouTube or share with friends and family via Google drive. We are going to be going to visit my mom for Thanksgiving and we're going to be bringing this DVD that collects some of our adventures over the past year. My son has quintupled in size since the beginning of the year. He's becoming a giant and we'll be able to kind of document this adventure that's taken us everywhere from Stony Point Mall circa 1990s Christmas movie all the way to Thessaloniki, Greece. And really, you know, you can kind of forget some of the amazing things that you actually do. I love this idea of creating a essentially video snapshot of each year at a time. And we have a portfolio of these that goes back five years, pre-existing my son now. And it's kind of like a cool tradition that my wife and I get to work on together, pick the photos that actually go into this. And then at the end of the year, we have some product. Aha, a year in review. Yeah. And Jonathan, you mentioned Thessaloniki, Greece in there, and that's where we had the Chautauqua a couple of weeks ago. And And it's interesting, that really was, for me, a life-changing experience, not only for the people I met, and though that was the big takeaway, but it really focused me on what do I want to get out of life and what does my day-to-day look like? And I think, obviously, by any measure, I really live this wonderful, charmed life, but that doesn't mean that every day is unicorns and rainbows. It just doesn't. I find that I waste days. There are days where I'm just sitting in front of the computer, ostensibly working, right? Quote unquote working, but really doing nothing. And it just makes me frustrated. I get through the end of the day. I haven't done anything that I actually want to do or spent any time with Laura or even the girls sometimes. And I just wonder where the day went. That focusing from Chautauqua has really helped me. And I've I've implemented it already just in these first couple of weeks back. I'm really being intentional about what my days look like and also carving out time specifically to work on Choose FI and not letting it extend beyond that time. So now Laura and I, every Wednesday, we're carving out a couple hours in the middle of the day and we're doing something fun. This past week, we went out to one of our favorite places for lunch and then we went to the University of Richmond, which is one of the most beautiful campuses in the whole country. And we just spent like an hour or hour and a half just walking around. It was a gorgeous fall day and we just enjoyed each other's company. That was just a neat thing that frankly, we would not have done if we weren't as intentional about it. So it's been a good couple of weeks and I'm just like we talk about in this podcast, I'm just trying to get a little bit better. Even when things are good, you can always get better and you can always just strive to make your life happier and those connections better and brighter, right? And that's what I'm trying to do. That's awesome, Brad. And I know one of the things that we mentioned in our presentation that we gave at Chautauqua was, do your actions align with your values? Is the way you're living your life out represent, if you were to put on a sheet of paper, what it is that you value, are those two things aligned? Because it's not always easy to carve out time to go spend it with your wife walking around a park. That take, You have to be very intentional about that. It's much easier to make a simpler choice and watch some sort of rerun on TV just because it's just, ah, you got through the day. To some degree, it requires engineering these and putting a little thought into it, planning your spontaneity and planning your relationships. So I, it's really cool to see you doing that. It's an inspiration to me to focus on that even more. Yeah, that's great to hear, Jonathan. And everybody out there can take, hopefully, a tiny little bit of inspiration from that. It's just just be a little bit more intentional, right? What is your day? What is your week? What does your month look like? And just try to do those things that you say, in theory, that you want to do. So yeah, it's been very powerful in my life. Granted, you know, it, it's been two weeks, but this is a learning process, right? So I'm, I'm trying my best. 
Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the mall in there and that kind of reminded me of this one random little frugal tip that I picked up that I wanted to pass along. I'm a subscriber to Money Magazine and there was this uh, cool article in this past month's episode that was 10 big chain stores that will secretly match Amazon's low prices. I was really surprised by this. I didn't know this even existed, frankly. And I know obviously a lot of people, even in our community, are going to be shopping for the next couple of months, right? The holidays are coming up and such. So this could be one of those tips that just save you a lot of money if you happen to be out and the convenience of buying in one of these stores. So just randomly off the top of my head, there was Home Depot, Lowe's, Best Buy, Staples, Bed Bath & Beyond, and a handful of other stores. So I'm gonna link these up in the show notes. Actually, I found another article, like a companion article on CNBC that had a few other ones. So I think there's like 14 stores. And actually some of them, if you find a better price at Amazon, they'll actually not only match the price, but they'll give you a 10% discount. So just a tiny little frugal win of the week. But yeah, check out those articles, certainly if you do any shopping at those stores that I mentioned. All right, man. Well, let's go ahead and talk about this past week's episode with Nick. This episode with Nick spoke to some of my limiting beliefs. If I were to you know, speak to my 10-year younger self, right? The idea of being an entrepreneur, it was, it was too scary. It was too nebulous. Well, I don't have any great ideas. And I never really got past that because I didn't have any great ideas. I just said, well, then that means I need to, I need to focus on W2 income. And what I've heard from Nick and from this community, and frankly, from you is you don't need to have a perfect idea. You just need to get started. And it's really hard to come up with a perfect idea when you're looking at it from the outside. It's actually taking action on something, having it flop or fail, or maybe having it kind of work. All of that is useful. All of that gives you information and it shows you the guidepost and helps you focus your idea and iterate it to something that is awesome or pivot it to something that is awesome. It's, it's taking action, right, Brad? Yeah. I mean, that has been what we've talked about from episode one. You have to take action to make your life better. You just simply do. So yeah, that's a huge takeaway. And I think also him saying one source of income is risky, misunderstanding the level of risk with having a W-2 job. I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurship is risky, but yet staying in a W-2 job is safe. And I'm not sure that's the case at all. And Brad, that reminds me of the point that you made. And frankly, you kind of shared more in that episode about your work history than I was even aware of up to this point. I was astonished when you revealed that and it sounded like you got a job with one of the most premium accountant firms in the country. I think you guys call them the big four if you're in that industry. And then suddenly it just disappeared. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is when I graduated college in 2001, it was the big five and literally Arthur <laughs> Anderson was in my opinion and in the opinion of many people, the premier accounting firm in the entire world. So I joined in September of 2001 and then there was that Enron fiasco by a small group of people, I think in the Dallas office, that firm for all intents and purposes ceased to exist nine months later. So I've never seen a fall. It was breathtaking to see a company with that type of reputation just essentially disappear in nine months. So, it, I mean, truly, truly amazing. And that, A, was frightening for me. I mean, I'm a 22-year-old kid at that point. I have what seemed like a job that could put me on a trajectory to, who knows, partnership or whatever it may be, right? Like at the end of the rainbow of accounting, this is you know my naive self when I first started. And then this company ceases to exist. So, I mean, you should have seen people there. There were partners who had worked their entire careers, were making a boatload of money, had significant value in the partnership, and the firm doesn't exist in June of 2002. It was ludicrous. 
thankfully, in my case, our partners brokered a deal with, then it was the big four, right? Because the fifth accounting firm ceased to exist. So they brokered a deal with another firm and we literally picked up our desks and our files and moved across the street and we were KPMG employees from then on. So in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't, it wasn't a terrible resolution, but I've got to say like those nine months were pretty terrible. People were just frightened every day that they were going to be out on the street, right? And there was no, no guarantee at all that we were going to have jobs. That's something that seared in my mind that W-2 income can be very risky. And I'm glad I learned it at that young age. And I can think of examples in, in the retail sector as well, where that's just clear something that's just, it's the biggest thing on the block suddenly overnight just disappears. Blockbusters. There's like one blockbuster left in the world. And it's a, it's basically a novelty at this particular point in time. But in the early 1990s, it was the face of entertainment. It, you know, you just, you just don't know. And if, and if you're all in on that hand, you can wake up to a harsh reality. I, you know, I'm picking that as a very stark example, but there are plenty of things that we think are fixed certainties. And we just say, yes, we're all in. We're going to ride this W2 job to the top. And, and as you're pointing out, you simply don't know. It doesn't matter if you have an escape plan, if you have a additional sources of income, if you've basically diversified your income stream. But if you're just banking on this one company to be your path to the end, what happens when your company faces a massive class action lawsuit, when your sector goes through an extreme economic downturn, or when your company loses its biggest contract with its top three clients due to whatever reason? If you're all in on that hand, that can be world ending. Yeah. And I think financial independence and the pursuit of FI is the counterpoint to the standard American, let's say middle-class lifestyle, which to me is, is the ultimate in risk, right? It's having one source of income, one employer, and not having any money saved. If you get laid off, which frankly could happen on any given day, no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, you could get laid off on any given day. That's the unfortunate uncertainty of working for someone else. I'm not trying to fear monger by any means, but it's just, that's reality. And for most people, they have no savings. Your entire life could be upended and changed as you know it in 30 to 90 days. How much runway do most normal people have if they got laid off? So to me, this is just about having a side hustle. That is about diversification. It's about giving you that extra little runway. Even if you're only making, like you said on the Monday episode, if you're only making 500 or $1,000 from it, well, who knows what you can do when you're working on that full time? There might be a way to dramatically improve that. But having that little bit of income on the side can help you dramatically. And in the time when you have a W-2 job, hopefully you're saving every dollar of that side income or reinvesting it back in the business to make it even bigger. So I think having those plans in place well in advance just gives you that buffer and that safety zone that's got to help psychologically just dramatically. You know, one of the things that both of us are really passionate about is this idea of talent stacking. And I know it's something that we've used in our own businesses, but I thought maybe for the sake of getting out of the way of our own story, we could talk about it in the context of my wife, Danny. She has pursued audiobook narration. And frankly, she used this intersection method as well. What is it that she's good at? What is it that she enjoys? What is it that would kind of blend some of these different inclinations and predispositions into possibly a source of income? Well, she wants to be able to work from home. She wants to be able to set her own schedule. She wants to be able to earn a high hourly rate. 
her husband is pretty good at being able to set the bar for high audio quality. That's a skill set that I've been able to develop by working on Chooseify. If she were to put all of those together, it seems pretty obvious that she could do a form of audiobook narration. Let's say she tried audiobook narration and it turns out it's just too much work or it's too hard or it's too much of a commitment or whatever else. She could very easily pivot that with some of the lessons that we talked about in this past week's episode and do short readings, maybe, maybe create a brand on Fiverr. And instead of reading a, a book that might take, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 hours or more to complete, maybe now she's actually doing very specific ad reads, listing her services on Fiverr. And this is something that she can do when our son is asleep. This is something that she can do when she has downtime and she can start to slowly grow her brand. As you know, Brad, when you decide to start creating your own brand along the way, you have to learn how to market yourself. You have to learn how to network. You have to learn how to do communications. I mean, there's just all sorts of other skill sets that you don't think about, but they're so vital and they carry you into different aspects. Let's say that the audiobook narration for her, it wasn't like a, a crazy wild success, but she was able to bring in some level of income with it that automatically affords you additional opportunities in terms of breaking into helping someone else do the same thing. So there's many people that I know that started out, their path was, I'm going to be a podcaster or something along those lines, or maybe I'm going to be a blogger or a writer. They learned that skill set, And for whatever reason, their blogger podcast didn't end up being their final product, but they were able to pivot. And instead of now focusing on their own blogger podcast, they were able to take the, the skills that they learned along the way and they were able to get freelance work helping someone else build theirs. Again, being able to set their own schedule, work from home, bring in regular income, like get a lot of the benefits, but they did this because they started on something themselves. And I think we've seen that pattern. I can think of that pattern being implemented over and over again. Yeah, I think the pivot is important. And it's important just to be mindful of that, that it's possible that you're, even if you do, like I said before, quote unquote, fail, you're still learning things every step of the way, and you just never know when they're going to come in handy down the road. Danny might decide audiobook narration that spends dozens upon dozens of hours. It's just something she's not interested in. Or who knows? Maybe she doesn't get another book offer or something, right? You, you just never know. But like you said, she could pivot into a whole host of things. She can narrate children's books, which sure as heck doesn't take dozens upon dozens of hours, right? She can put something up on Fiverr and she has a lovely voice. I mean, I guarantee you there are people who would want her to narrate something. It might be a short little snippet, a birthday greeting. I mean, who knows, right? It could be anything. And I mean, we've even used Fiverr, right? For our intro music and our hot seat music. And I know you had a great experience with that guy and he's busy constantly and has all these upsells. It's not like he's doing this for $5. He's a premium guy on Fiverr. Yeah, absolutely. You can completely build a brand for yourself. And, and I think to myself, there are so many sectors where this is possible and where you are going in and you are creating wealth for your employer, right? If you're earning a salary, very likely your employer is earning some excess of that to justify your salary. There's like a rate of return. And I think for individuals, and, and this is going to sound cliche, but let's just talk about software engineers right now. Software engineers are being brought on to companies to solve very specific problems and help companies address this problem. If a software engineer has a little bit of bandwidth and they are able to take that kind of what sucks mentality and apply it to their own life and solve a small problem, the world completely opens up. It's just, it's just incredible. And you can think of individuals, the individuals that realize this early on, 
now have massive startups that other people have bought into that vision. It doesn't have to be a software engineer. If you enjoy anything, if you enjoy woodworking, I can think of an individual that loves woodworking and was willing to document his journey, tackling going from small projects to large projects, uses this intersection method of saying, what do I want to do with my free time? Well, I really want to learn how to woodwork. Is there a way that I could get paid to do that. Well, absolutely you can. You can take some of the the concepts that we've talked about in our how to make money episode that we did online and he was able to start documenting that process, talk about the tools that he was using, create courses, create mentorships, create video tutorials and digital classes and I mean, he got an offer from an individual to buy his website for a million dollars and then he was like, "You know what? I don't really want to walk away from this. I want to I want to keep doing this." He made that choice, though, because he was able to build this business and build this brand around something. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be becoming a software engineer, but it but it's like thinking about this talent stack, overlapping talents. What did it what is it that you want to learn? And if you say, well, I can't do that because I'm not an expert. There's way many more people that aren't experts until they are. And what if you're one of those people that's documenting your journey to becoming an expert? So you're grabbing that relatable mantle along the way. And you're building your way up. At some point, you do grab that armchair expert status. And that is, it's worth talking about. Yeah, there's no question. And Nick said something that I thought was really, really interesting, where he said, look at these as a series of experiments. And that lessens the sting of failure. I think so many people, even though they hear us, they hear so many different sources of information say like, you can't look at this as failure. You have to look at it in a positive light. But it's, it's hard. It's hard to see it that way because you're spending time, you're spending money trying to figure something out. And if it doesn't succeed wildly, then you think it's a failure. But to me, that's the wrong way of looking at it. I would have personally given up if I had looked at it my entire life like that. Like the last 10 years, I had maybe seven different internet businesses that basically failed spectacularly, but I didn't look at it like that. It was just a stepping stone to get me to where I am today. And I think that's a powerful concept. Don't get me wrong, like this was not overnight success for me by any means. I mean, this was toiling. I had a website called soccertools.com where I was literally like typing out the English Premier League championship tables. I mean, this is how ludicrous, Jonathan. Like I taught myself HTML. Whatever came from that, nothing. It was the most ridiculous waste of time for that actual website, but it taught me rudimentary HTML that I've been able to use on future WordPress sites that I have. To me, that was not a waste of time. You know, it's funny, Laura and I talk about that and she's like, do you remember when you used to do that? And it's amazing to think that it was only less than 10 years ago, but it was a stepping stone, stepping stone, stepping stone, stepping stone, all these quote unquote failures, they've led me to where I am today. And yeah, I mean, I think that kind of second method that Nick talked about, what I like to call pain points, I think he called it what sucks, but the, the pain points, I think this is interesting because Dominic Curtuccio talked about looking for pain points in your life in a different manner to kind of overcome these kind of habits that are just reflexive and looking for areas that you can improve on. And I think you can kill two birds with one stone in this essence. You could look for ways to improve your life and you can also maybe come up with a business opportunity. That's what's neat about this. And it's not focusing on the negative. I think that's a crucial part. We get what we look for in life. So if you're constantly focusing on the negative, I suspect you're going to have a very unhappy life. So I'm not advocating that at all. I just mean, be aware, jot something down. If there's something you think could be better in your life or a product or a service or just anything with your own routine, anything, 
who knows? See how you can make it better personally or see if there's a business opportunity. I think that's a, a really, really good point by Nick. And I'm glad that he made this its own category. Did anybody else just go to Google and type in soccertools.com? I, I know I huh. did. <laughs> and I was so disappointed <laughs> I, when I it's just- I cannot imagine. It, it certainly doesn't exist for me. I can tell you that for sure. Yeah, it looks like it's been bought by a company called Uni Registry, and it's just a picture of a mountain. And now there's nothing there, <laughs> not, not even a single ad on it. There's no content whatsoever. I was, I was kind of disappointed, but I thought it was worth the shot anyways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. His third method that I want to talk about just for a second was this rip pivot jam method. And the, and the idea here is you don't need to have something that's unique. You don't need to have something that nobody else has thought of before. You just need to take an idea that, you know, is already working. Like how many Taco Bells and variations of Taco Bells type stores are there all over the country? Right. And you, you don't need to have the store. You just need to take something make a slight pivot on it, make it your own, make it unique, and then apply it to your own demographic, your own geographic location, you know, wh whatever that may be. This is really valuable. This, this to me says that you can go listen to the 270 some odd episodes, listen for something that catches your interest and figure out a way to do that in your own geographic region or figure out a way to do it differently or better, whatever. Google wasn't the first search engine. I remember, right? Ask Jeeves. There are a million versions of websites that are just better versions of other websites. You don't need to have the idea. You just need to take action. So those are our biggest takeaways, but I hope it's encouraging. I mean, if I think back to my 18-year-old self, it was, I don't have any ideas. And if I look back at that thought process now, I realize it was just a limiting belief. If I said, well, it's too expensive, I can't afford it or I can't risk it. I took out $168,000 and I gave up 12 years of my life to pursue a degree that now I'm no longer using at all. And while I, I, I'd say, quite honestly, it wasn't a life mistake, right? Because it gave me my story. It's who I am. You trying something and spending $1,000 on something that may or may not take off is not a failure. It's not a, it's not a life mistake. It's propelling you forward and it's giving you a sense of something that won't work. But the key is that you are willing to take action and do something. And I think that's just, that's, that's hopefully the takeaway. Get started and try something. Diversify your income streams. I would love for you to share with us what you're taking action on, what you're trying, how it's going, how you rip pivot and jammed with a different idea. And we hope that we can continue to highlight stories of people that have been able to diversify their income stream through the pursuit of a side hustle. I think it's really beneficial for us as a community to help elevate these stories to the top. And speaking of which, Jose is calling in to share a side hustle opportunity through TaskRabbit. Hey guys, this is Jose Gutierrez calling from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just sending everyone a quick side hustle tip. Just started a few months ago with a service called TaskRabbit, a simple online sign-up, an app. I pop in uh, every few weeks and put in the days and hours that I'm available and actually am eligible to get hired for quick moving jobs. And uh, the biggest one recently is IKEA building jobs. So if you have any skills in uh, building those crazy Ikea assemblies, I'm getting $32 an hour from the TaskRabbit app to do those Ikea tasks and everything else I can set my rights. So for moving and hauling, helping people do some quick moves around town or even just moving some quick things inside their house, which is mainly what I've had. I have it at $25 an hour. So uh, just a quick side hustle tip. I've yeah, basically done it, just popped in every once in a while. 
I've maybe done it once a week for every other week for a few months and already made close to a grand. So Task Rabbit is the app and uh, that's kind of what you want to look up. Uh, let me know if you need any help with gathering the links for any of the listeners. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, Jose, that's really cool. And $32 an hour, it sounds pretty nice, certainly to build Ikea furniture. I, I know personally, I have built more Ikea beds and dressers than I care to remember. I think my entire house is outfitted with Ikea stuff. So yeah, you better watch out. I think you might have some uh, competition in the near future here. I don't know about that, Brad. I was at your house and I saw a little, that, that table that I leaned on a little bit wobbly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe don't look at the dresser in my uh, bedroom either. But um, <laughs> wait, 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 can I just point something out? And, and this doesn't apply directly to the side hustle, but it does apply to making your own furniture for individuals and community. And they say that people get more joy from an Ikea furniture that they made themselves, that even when it's slightly warbly or you mix something up just a little bit, than you do from that perfect dresser that you bought that was already made and everything's perfectly assembled, but it has like a tiny defect on it. You just notice it and you judge it. But when you had some part in crafting it yourself, you just, you give it so much more grace, I guess is the right word for it. But kind of worth pointing out the other half of that. So I'm sure that you love that, that warbly table that you put on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is great satisfaction in making yourself. I agree completely, even if it's just putting together an Ikea dresser or something. But, oh, I meant to mention, Nick had mentioned on the podcast. So he was talking about rental real estate and even that service Turo, where you can rent your own car. He talked about them running them as a business. Instead of just saying like, oh, this is my house or this is my car, look at it as an actual business. And what's interesting was I went to Turo.com and I had mentioned previously how we're going to Maui in Hawaii next August. And that's going to be like our big family trip. This past year, we went to Europe and we're going to Maui next year. So I needed a rental car for like three weeks and it was astronomical, Jonathan. Like it was more going through like Hertz or Enterprise. I was really shocked and taken aback at how much it was going to be. So I went on Turo and we wound up renting a 2006 Toyota Highlander, which is actually very, very similar to our 03 Highlander. And it was well less than half the price of what I would have paid to rent it from one of the, the big rental car agencies. So yeah, that was a big win just from listening to my own podcast. So that was, <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> All right, wait, wait, can we just pause on that for just a second? Uh, the, the part that I actually was really curious about was when you download Turo and you use the app and you're getting a car, are you responsible for getting to that person's driveway? Are you picking it up at the individual's home? So no, in, in this case, and I think every car is different. So in this case, I actually have to pay a very small fee for him to drive to the airport, I believe. I guess he'll have like a second car there or some such. So you're paying him like a nominal little fee. I think it was like 20 or $30. And then I get the pickup and drop off at the airport. There are some where I think you do actually have to somehow connect with them in some way. And many of them include an airport pickup just free. Like that's the normal way it works. But I mean, you're actually dealing with a car owner. I will have this guy's cell phone number, he'll have mine and and we'll connect and just make sure it all works. So again, it, it's similar to eBay or Airbnb or any other system. It works on reviews and it works on trust. And this particular guy had great feedback. So it, it seemed like uh, a risk I was willing to take. Cool, man. All right. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and hop into this last part of the show. We have saved for the final part in our side hustle coaching series. And I'm just going to play a little bit of catch up here that this was initiated because we were fortunate enough to have Alan Donegan come on the show in episode 30. 
he basically talked through this idea of the importance of a side hustle for our community and really gave a wonderful episode. It pairs very well with this one. He opened up to our community the offer to do free coaching to help someone from our community build a side hustle from the ground up. We built this little contest around it and we selected Talis from our community to help her build a business from scratch. And she wanted to build a business teaching ballroom dance to people with Parkinson's. That was the that was the idea for the business. Since that particular point in time, we have actually done three coaching calls, all of which have been recorded and released on the show. And I'm going to list the episodes here so that if you want to listen to the first three episodes, if you haven't already, you can do that. They'll also be linked in the show notes for today's episode. So the Side Hustle Coaching Series, if you want to listen to that, it's episode 30, talking about side hustles. Episode 56 was the first part in the Side Hustle Coaching Series. Episode 77R was the second part. Episode 85R was the third part. And this is the fourth and final part of that Side Hustle Coaching Series. And with that, let me introduce Talis and Alan Donegan from Pop-Up Business School in the final part of the Side Hustle Coaching Series. All right. Well, it's been a couple months since we last spoke. When we talked last, there were a couple things that were going on. One, we heard from someone in our community, they had access to Northwestern Hospital and you got access to that organization potentially. And then the other thing that we were talking about together in our call was at some point, and that point is now, you needed to go make your first cold call. And Alan was walking us through that uncomfortable pause and we were kind of working through some of the details on that. And you committed to making 30 phone calls in the interim. And I guess, Talis, to start this thing off, I'm curious, like, what has happened? Yeah, we talked a little bit about how to make those 30 calls and who to make them to. And so I did think Alan's suggestion to do them to businesses that I wouldn't necessarily be working for, their practice calls. So I did call some, we'll call them facilities, out of state. So ones that I wouldn't necessarily be able to serve right now, but I just wanted to kind of practice on them and see if it was something that they would be interested in doing. So those were interesting just from the standpoint of I had to decide who I was going to tell them I was and what I was trying to get the information for. (laughs) I had one where she was like, so who do you work for? And she was very skeptical. And I was like, yeah, I get it. This is a little bit weird. But Um, No, I just said, hey, I'm doing some research as an entrepreneur and I'd like to offer this programming. And and most of the calls were like, oh, this is awesome. Where are you? Why can't we do one of this? Why Why can't you do this now? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, I'm in Des Moines and you're in Utah, but let's talk later. I'll get there. But I was able to figure out that it didn't necessarily matter um, the size of the facility, but like we guessed, funding is different for all of them. And it was all across the board in terms of what they would pay for and how much they would pay for it. I think what was better is as I worked down the list, I started making calls that were more local and I was able to get more information on kind of what their budgetary restrictions were. And I now have four classes that I'll be starting as a result of these calls. So so four of them are local. Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) One of them was actually face-to-face. So we just decided to like just meet and do it in person. It's a retirement facility and they're going to do a weekly class for the residents. So I'm excited about that. And yeah. You so have a the business. The process is like, yeah, it's working. I know. Just like Alan said it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should pause and acknowledge you did the calls. You won customers. Wow. Yay. Congratulations, yeah. Alan. Thank you. Do you feel comfortable with the uncomfortable pause at this point? Uh, I don't know. That's a tricky question. 
I don't think that I do. It's just not as scary. I don't know that it's something you get comfortable with. I am so excited for you. That is, I mean, and honestly, just the fact that you did that, it it almost to me, it it spills over into every single aspect of your life. You've been able to create your first pitch, put it out to the world, realize that if someone says no, they're not rejecting you. You know, it's not a personal thing at this point. And then you're willing to refine and pitch again and get better. I mean, I got to imagine that regardless of where this side hustle, this business venture goes as an aspiring entrepreneur, it's not the specific idea. It's the skill set. That is the biggest thing that you've probably come away with. And I'm incredibly excited for you. Well, thank you. Yeah, it is very exciting. Alan may have said this in our last conversation. When they do say no, it's not like no at all. It's like, no, not right now. No, that's not going to fit our mold right now. But we like what you're saying. That's reassuring too, as people are pretty great overall. No one was like, this is terrible. Never call me again. It was, I didn't have any like bad calls, I would say. (laughs) Was there anyone that you almost felt like there was like a sense of regret on their side that they couldn't say yes? Well, yeah, there was that call. I wasn't joking. I really did call this place in Utah. I don't know. We, I think I'd be friends with this woman. Like we had a really good chat (laughs) and she was so, this is awesome what you're doing. And then I found out she knew someone with Parkinson's. And so she's like, yeah, this is great. Let me know when you can come to Utah because we'll do this. So that was really nice. And just reassuring that I can grow this to a level beyond just my, my region. This may be a little bit early, but in my mind, this is what success looks like. Now I realize that there are all sorts of other things that are involved when it comes to growing and scaling this thing and marketing it and then bringing people into it and making sure the numbers work. This is the beginning, but at the same point, this didn't exist you know, a month ago and now you have proof of concept and now it's just a numbers game and it's just working through your business model and optimizing every little piece of it. But I mean, this is, this is incredible. Yeah, it's great. I am excited about these classes that I'm really going to actually fulfill here. And then I wanted to kind of talk about how I take those real scenarios now and brand them in a way that I could grow it to, you know, an out of state business where I could say, you know, this is a real package. And then it becomes a feasibility thing of how do I, how do I get there? Or do I need to hire someone else? Or does it make sense for me to, to grow beyond? But yeah, it's exciting to have these real classes that are going to be happening. And then, you know, just taking that experience and maybe getting some marketing out of it. So there's something that came to mind earlier on when we were kind of going through making this pitch, I believe we were spending a lot of time thinking about different sorts of metrics, what we could demonstrate, how to demonstrate value and then sell that value to additional facilities. And we were talking about how people feel and is there any sort of like Parkinson's type symptom relief measurements that we can track and we can show any sort of improvement. And I'm just wondering now that you've made these pitches and you've already had people, you know, essentially say, yes, we want this service. Are you still looking for quality of life metrics or at this point, is it almost like a domino effect where you feel like just the fact that you have the program and it's meeting the need in these facilities is enough at this point? I think it's more the the latter because I think I need to get the numbers up and just get as you know farther from individual like anecdotal, purely anecdotal evidence so that I can start to ask the right questions and build those surveys. So I I think we're like kind of thinking on the same track that it's successful already to just have the gigs and I need to go and teach them and then kind of refine even still the model of the class itself before I start really overanalyzing the results. 
so I do have one thought for you on that is mm-hmm. that tracking from the early days gives you data over the long term. Don't do what sure. I did with my business, which is I launched, I did a load of stuff, but I never tracked anything. Then ah. you come back and I'd run a couple of years worth of workshops and I did a bit of tracking here and there, but I didn't ask the same questions. I had mixed metrics uh, and it was all a bit of a mess. Like at some stage, money gets tighter in an organization and then money gets looser. And someone says, uh, why are we buying this program? What's the value? Mm. And at that point, you need the stats to be able to prove it. And it's happened recently with a couple of our customers where for whatever reason, money's become a bit tighter for them. And we've had to re-justify what we're doing. So I just say that even if you're starting out, it's worth just having in mind, how can I track right from the very beginning? Did people enjoy these? Did it improve happiness, health, fitness? Did it release symptoms? And I think that tracking over the long term gives us something to be able to resell when you have to resell. Because in any cycle of a sale, you'll sell it into someone now, we'll run a program for a year or six months, and then we'll have to resell maybe when someone moves position or something changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. And I appreciate that input. And we talked a lot about actually capturing some data already. So I don't think there's any harm in, in continuing to do that. Yeah. And I actually got an email from Drew and uh, he wanted me to pass this along to you. And he said, I work in a cancer nonprofit. I'm so glad they're looking to measure the before and after effects of the class on patients. Measurement will be so important to the pharma, the nursing homes, family foundations, the Parkinson's national advocacy groups and big foundations like Robert Wood Johnson. Before she gets too far along, I want to suggest that she use a quality of life metric that already exists and is clinically validated. This way, when she starts talking to sophisticated organizations, they'll already know about the validity of the tool she is using instead of just making up one on your own. Uh, One of the set of measures that I have used in my work are called promise measures, P-R-O-M-I-S measures. There are hundreds of these, but I quickly looked up one set that could be good for her. I use the Global Health Survey, which is a short 10-question survey about global health. However, there are other domains that may be appropriate for her to add on in addition to this, like motor function, physical activity, physical function, satisfaction with participation, stiffness. And he's provided the link as well, Talos. But he says a neurologist who does research can help you uh, validate this to find the best tool. And this is proof of concept for your class. But if you can show the changes in quality of life and a nursing home can put an economic value on that, like marketing it to prospective families, that's fantastic but you should use something clinically validated instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. So I can connect you with him if you have any additional questions, but I feel like that would be a great. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks Drew. That's awesome. (laughs) That is fantastic because it's the stats and the stories. If we can get the proper stats that line up with the industry we're selling to and then have the real life stories of people we've actually helped. That's the knockout combination when growing a product and selling it. So, Talis, I have a question for you, and it's okay to not know the answer because I don't think I know the answer for my business. Like, if you could imagine your business in two years' time, where are you headed? What is it going to look like? What are you doing? What I would like the answer to be, at least, I'll say, this and, would be that in the state of Iowa where I live and I have started this business, I would like to be serving everyone with Parkinson's. And that doesn't mean that every single person with Parkinson's in the state is going to be taking my class, but I think that I need to grow 
and can grow within two years to make that possible. I think I can do that actually without hiring anyone else just because of the the size and the easeability of, of getting around. But I'm now very much affiliated with the Iowa APDA chapter and funding opportunities here. So I don't think that that is by any means impossible over the next two years. That's an incredible goal. So you don't actually think you'll need it to hire anyone to be able to do that? Not to be here within the state, no. And see that, if we could track that over the next two years, that gives us an incredible data set of people we've helped and people we haven't helped. And the difference between the two, what an incredible opportunity that is. Yeah, it's amazing how well connected the community is here and people are just willing to support. And and even people I don't know, like Drew and, and, and people who are listening in are just so ready to say, hey, here we are and we'd love to help you out. And a couple people within the state have already reached out to me just as a result of this podcast. So very grateful for that. Oh, I got chills down my spine. That's so cool to see this thing come to life. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. What is your biggest challenge? What scares you? Honestly, in my mind, the scariest thing is like going to make that pitch, but you've done the pitch and with each successive pitch, it gets easier. What scares you next? I don't know. I feel like what scares me about all of this is that it is so tangible. And so I'm like, what's the catch? What if I miss the point? It does seem like it's all kind of happening. And in a way, like that's scary to me. I'm like, oh, it's. It's Maybe like, I struck gold here and this is really good, you know? <laughs> what like, if it works? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what if, like, what if I succeed? Ah! <laughs> so, yeah, it's that weird psychology behind being more scared of success than failure, I think. Not meeting a lot of resistance yet, which is good, but I need to be, like, pushing myself, I think, to just get after it. I think it's incredible. When you find the right thing and you've got the right message, how the universe just responds how people open up and give you ideas and support. And when you find you're on the right path, it happens naturally and easily. If we were mm-hmm. battling and battling and battling, then we'd start to have doubt questions of, am I doing the right thing? But when you get a great response from people and the business is just flying, then we just press on. Let's keep going for it. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't be prepared for something to go wrong because there'll always be a bump in the road. But... <laughs> The way it's going at the moment, just enjoy it. Let's just fly for it. Yeah. And and really, like I am doing something I'm really passionate about. It's not really feeling like work. It's feeling like service and opportunity. And if I can get paid for that as well, then that's just bonus. So Alan, this reminds me, going back to our first coaching call, in fact, when you announced that you were going to do this coaching series, you said that once we had this business up and rolling, you're coming to the States and we're all getting tacos. So tell us, I think we need to hold them to this. Yeah, I love tacos. Let's do it. We definitely will. <laughs> I'm coming to Texas and then I'm going to Longmont to run a pop-up. Yeah, I, I have no idea where Iowa is, so I need to look that up to see if it's anywhere near Texas. <laughs> it, it, north, it's definitely north of Texas. <laughs> this is so bit. much fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we definitely need to celebrate this and, and tell us, you know, it's one of those things that when you find success at this point, the action plan is just to keep pressing forward. Don't be scared of success. Don't feel like there's, you know, this hook waiting for you on the backside, just pursue it aggressively and see what the world opens up to you. But thank you for being willing to do this with us on the show. This has been so much fun. And I promise you, this isn't the last time we're going to talk. We are planning on following you on this journey and really seeing how this how this business unfolds in its entirety, but it's very cool to have been here at the beginning. And call us anytime. We just want to know how it's going. 
I love hearing the successes and just stay in touch and let us know how you're doing. Yeah, of course. And thank you both. I mean, this was just like something coming down the dream pipe when I uh, submitted that voicemail, what, last summer? And when you guys responded and said, okay, let's do this, um, it just really gave, gave me the boost that I needed to be confident about it. So I really appreciate that from both of you. And uh, it's exciting. All right, to Talis, a huge congratulations for taking action on this. And a big thank you to Alan and Talis for being willing to share this conversation for our community. I think there's so many people that have been looking for a framework. And this four-part series, I think, really tells a compelling story because ultimately it's not really the idea. Building a business requires a framework. And so many entrepreneurs say this, the idea wasn't as important as the process. And I, I think that this really came together nicely, right, Brad? Yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, it is a thought process and it's a skill set. So even if you don't ever plan on teaching ballroom dance to Parkinson's patients, that's irrelevant. It's you should go back and listen to those four episodes and listen to what Alan talks through with Talis and the kind of prompts that he gives her to think through the issue and how she can improve her business, like what type of market research she can do, how she can get other people on board to potentially sponsor her, right? Or make this a win-win. So I think there's a lot of lessons that anybody can take as they're looking to build a side hustle of their own. And yeah, just to follow up, a huge, huge thank you to Alan. He's become such a close friend of ours and he's just an amazing, amazing human being. And the fact that he took the time, care, and attention out of his busy schedule to do this is just amazing. And the entire Choose a Vibe family and community thanks him. All right, my friends. Well, unfortunately, that is going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every week by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. And there's three books that we offer. The first is J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. The second is Dominic Cortuccio's book, Design Your Future. And the third book from Vincent Puglisi, Freelance to Freedom. If you want to enter the drawing, all you need to do, just go to choosefi.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there and leave us a written review on either Stitcher or iTunes, and then send us an email to feedback at choosefi.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get, and we announce the winner on the Friday roundup. Brad, how many winners do we have today? All right, Jonathan, we have one winner today, and the winner is John, and he called it an incredible podcast about money, life, and happiness. I finally caught up on all of the episodes from the beginning. I've learned so much from this podcast. I was naturally frugal from a young age, but this gave me more direction and guidance. Brad and Jonathan break things down very well. So many things I was afraid to take the next step on before listening now seem to be so easy to do. The changes I've made over the last year or so will be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars over my lifetime. Thanks so much for the wonderful information you have provided me. And thank you so much to our audience for listening. If you got value from today's episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less travel. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.